The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Friday, December 13th, 2019. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. You know how Twitter is destroying everything? Information, communication. Well, finally, someone is doing something about all that annoying, excessive tweeting. D-Bird. D-Bird automatically recognizes bird noises in your audio recordings and removes them with precision. Okay, so it's not really about that kind of tweeting. But new from Boom Studios is D-Bird. Meet the involuntary number one enemy of recordists and editors alike, birds. While their lively and delightful song is a true asset in nature ambiences, it ruins just about everything else. So they've made a software that you plug it in and it takes out all the bird noises. I would play you some of this. They put out a side-by-side comparison, but it's kind of underwhelming because you get like five seconds of birds and they're like, and here it is without the birds. And then it just sounds like no birds. But imagine using that software for a David Attenborough special. He clears a space in the forest to serve as his concert platform. That damn bird's ruining everything. We want to hear David Attenborough. In fact, this sentence was recorded with DeBird. Let me now play it back using the original recording, which I tracked outside. And I think you can hear that originally there were some birds in the background. In fact, this sentence was recorded with DeBird. Tweets, you have met your match. Well, this could actually pretty negatively impact that Bob Costas interview with Larry Bird after the 86 finals. I don't know. He was never that verbose anyway. And Senator Robert Bird used to go on the floor of the Senate and talk about Shakespeare. We'd lose all that, I guess. Still, still, I endorse the beneficial effects of D. Bird. We should note, however, that it is unconfirmed that D. Bird has been connected to the passing away of Carol Spinney. On the show today, I talk about impeachment, attention, And I even include Boris Johnson. I don't know. Maybe you're like, can I skip this one? Yeah, that's exactly what Doug Collins of Georgia wants you to do. But first, Peter Bergen, CNN correspondent, has been covering Trump's national security team since it was assembled. He takes us through the personnel, the policies, and the fits of pique that came to define Trump and his generals. Trump and his generals, the cost of chaos. Peter Bergen up next. And by the way, do you want to listen to the gist at home on your Alexa? We have built a new Alexa skill. Just say, Alexa, enable the gist to enable the skill on your Alexa device and begin playing the show. To play it after that, you could just say, Alexa, play the gist. So they say history is written by the victors. It's not entirely true. In fact, if you really look at how history is written and then it's often rewritten, it's written by journalists, journalists who have a little bit of perspective and it takes a 
week. It takes a year. It takes a couple years to put the picture together. Now, among the great journalists in America today doing this are Jane Mayer and Ron Suskind and, of course, Bob Woodward. Let's add Peter Bergen to the list. You probably know him from CNN, where he is the national security analyst. But in his new book, Trump and His Generals, The Cost of Chaos, I would say he presents the definitive account of how Donald Trump led or didn't lead a national security team into chaos. Peter Bergen joins me now. Thanks for coming in. Well, thank you for that generous introduction. Well, I thought I thought it was great. You obviously had some great sources and I don't want to guess at them, but there's a lot of Steve Bannon interest and opinions expressed. There's maybe a little Gary Cohn. What about the generals themselves? Did you talk to any of the ex-generals and did they give you great information? In the author's note at the beginning of the book, I say I spoke to 100 people, which is true. Uh, in fact, I spoke to more than 100. Some people had a worm's eye view. Some people had a bigger view, but without getting into details. I mean, some people dealt with the administration, foreign officials. So, yeah, I mean, I got a, a pretty wide net. Yeah. The book starts with scene in the tank, and the tank is a real place in the Pentagon where FDR really drew up the plans for World War II. Yeah. And Trump was very attracted to the tank, but the plans he drew up were, well, as per the title of your book, chaotic. The book opens with this scene, which I think is probably the most important meeting of the Trump administration. It happened six months in July 20th, 2017. And basically, it was a scene cooked up by Steve Bannon, the chief strategist, H.R. McMaster, the national security advisor, Gary Cohn, the chief economic advisor, and Jim Mattis, secretary of defense, and to some degree, Rex Tillerson, secretary of state. And they all had, they all wanted to tell President Trump kind of what the world looked like. What were American commitments overseas? What were American trade deals? Why do we have 190,000 troops uh, around the world? But they all had different agendas. Because Steve Bannon, the, who led the America First nationalist wing of the party, wanted Trump basically to walk away from the meeting saying, hey, we're overextended and overcommitted. Jim Mattis and Rex Tillerson wanted to persuade him, along with Gary Cohn, that you know Americans' commitments overseas, military trade, were actually making America great. Yeah. <laughs> the meeting was turned out a total fiasco. President Trump did some listening and didn't really intervene. But at the end of these presentations, he basically blew up and said, we aren't doing any of this. We're, you know, this is exactly what we're not doing. These trade deficits matter. NATO, we don't really have any real allies there. You know, no one is like we're bleeding money. And he used a lot of pretty colorful language and left. Yeah. <laughs> And, and Bannon's in a pretty much 100% agreement with everything Trump says. Bannon couldn't be more thrilled with Trump's comportment and the decisions. Well, yeah, and at a certain point, Bannon's a backbencher, right? So he's sitting, he's not a cabinet member, he's sitting back. Uh, but he sees that he has an opening at a certain point, he lights into Steve Mnuchin, who's the Treasury Secretary, basically saying, if Trump pulls out of the Iran deal, it seems very likely none of these so-called allies are going to support us, which, of course, is basically what happened. Yeah, and so, Mattis can't say anything. He supports the Iran deal. Mattis, they all have different agendas. Yeah, Mattis supports the Iran deal because partly from Mattis's point of view, we made the Iran deal with the French, the Germans, and the British, and we don't sort of renege on our word. If I may interrupt, that's yeah. not just Mattis's point of view. That's fact. Well, I mean, <laughs> indeed. Yeah. But I mean, he didn't, I mean, he, he testified that the deal was working and he also didn't want this agreement to just blow up because we'd given our word. Mm -hmm. Trump goes back to the White House, a car follows Steve Bannon, uh, Reince Priebus and, and Jared Kushner. And Bannon says, this is like Lincoln and his generals, this moment in the tank at the Pentagon, because this is the moment that Trump is finally sort of saying, you know, it is America first. This is my plan. I don't, I reject your globalist sort of view of the world. I don't, I mean, NATO is, they're ripping us off. I mean, this is, you know, because we're sitting in New York City. I mean, 
Trump has been very consistent about the idea that allies are essentially free riding on us and are ripping us off. And yeah. he took out an ad in the New York Times in 1987 saying the Japanese were ripping us off and the Saudis were ripping us off. And they should pay down our then $200 billion federal deficit. So he's been very consistent. And so this meeting was really the first time he laid out this America first policy in front of all his cabinet and made it very clear that's where he wanted to go. And as that scene is played out and Bannon is flattering the president by comparing him to Lincoln, that'd be Abraham, by the way, in the tank, that's when Tillerson says that guy's a fucking moron. Indeed. So, I mean, you know, they, there was some talk about maybe redoing the discussion and everybody agreed it was just like it had gone badly and there was no reason to redo it. I've, uh, I learned from that that the phrase globalist might have connotations of an anti-Semitic slur, but it's not only that. They really mean it. These guys use that and really mean it to mean someone who values alliances like Mattis. Yeah. And I, I, I don't think it's intended to be anti-Semitic. I mean, maybe some people use it like that, but I think it's really just anybody who... The Council on Foreign Relations, NATO, internationalist, alliances, anybody who has that point of view is is a globalist. And in fact, back at the White House, Steve Bannon and President Trump are kind of celebrating and they're, they're basically dinging Rex Tillerson for being a, a globalist and stick, sticking in the Iran deal. And globalist is not a term of endearment in this lexicon. Yeah. We will examine the consequences of that meeting and the thought that went into that meeting. But let's just talk for a second about why those specific characters were there. You spent a lot of time on how Trump cast his cabinet like you would cast The Apprentice. And some of the things I learned were, one, it seems to me that Petraeus was seriously considered and was very impressive in his interview to be Secretary of State, which would have given us pretty much a a full house of generals (laughs) in the cabinet. Yeah, and and they weren't concerned about that, the people in the Trump team, and they weren't concerned that Trump, that Petraeus had shared with his mistress and biography classified materials, which he uh, received a misdemeanor sentence for. But two people were very concerned about it. One was Jim Mattis, who was going to be the Secretary of Defense, and the other one was John Kelly, who was going to be Secretary of Homeland Security. And both of them said, look, we cannot let this happen. And they were very clear that this would be very bad for morale and the armed forces, that the idea that you could just kind of hand over classified materials and kind of still ascend to become the most important cabinet post, arguably, and in, in certainly the, you know, the Secretary of State is one of the two most prestigious appointments. And yeah. so they basically nixed it. And I think that, and apparently, you know, Petraeus really, you know, he's a brilliant guy. He shone in this interview. He gave a real tour to Horizon. He had questions for Trump. Trump had questions for him. But after two or three days, that just blew up on the launch pad. Well, here's the interesting thing, and you don't get into your analysis, but I couldn't help but wondering if Mattis and Kelly were wrong. I understand from their perspective as military men, they prize good order and discipline. But look at the consequences. And also, let's also caveat it by saying this was the early days. They couldn't have known how off the rails things might have gone. But because they were, I don't know, let's say extremely focused on this, what was judged by the courts to be a misdemeanor, we got a series of events which led to pardoning of Chief Gallagher, if you want to talk about order and discipline. I mean, maybe they didn't see the forest from the trees, although, again, they could be, they can't be criticized for not seeing how crazy things would have gotten. Yeah, I mean, Rex Tillerson, who, of course, became the Secretary of State, like on his obituary, instead of reading he ran one of the world's most successful companies, it will read he was one of the worst or the worst Secretary of State in American history. And Petraeus, I think if Petraeus had been Secretary of State, he wouldn't have, like, he would have fought back. He wouldn't have let 
the White House sort of try and you know, reduce the budget there by 30%. I mean, he would have been, Petraeus is a very, obviously a very sophisticated guy, he knows how the government works. Mm-hmm. He would have been, a, I think, a very effective Secretary of State. But John Kelly and Jim Mattis were not going to let that happen. Okay, a couple more things about a couple generals we haven't mentioned. General Flynn, who was uh, important during the campaign and lasted, you know, a matter of a couple weeks in office. You talked a lot about his uh, Russian involvement, but he was also involved in this kind of crazy-seeming Turkish scheme to possibly kidnap the uh, Turkish dissident who's living in uh, Pennsylvania. What yeah, do you know about this? Well, I mean, one of the indicators that Mike Flynn, who was the national security advisor for the first 21 days, one of the indicators he had no idea Trump was going to win is he wrote an op-ed in the Hill newspaper, which is a relatively obscure newspaper in D.C. Well, it should be more obscure in my opinion. <laughs> <laughs> Basically saying, comparing this Turkish cleric Gulen to Ayatollah Khomeini and implying that he should be sent back to Turkey. Well, in Turkey, Gulen is a huge obsession and they would put him in jail and they'd probably execute him sure. because they blame him for the coup of 2016. Flynn had this kind of like he took half a million dollars with a company that had pretty strong links with Turkey he, as a senior military and intelligence officer. He should have registered as an agent of foreign influence. Uh, there's a FARA kind of registration that he should have gone through. So, you know, with Turkey, Flynn, by the way, was, I talked to him, lots of people who know him and, you know, very highly regarded intelligence officer when he was working in Iraq and Afghanistan. He led the Defense Intelligence Agency, got kind of fired essentially by the Obama administration. And then he seemed to have succumbed to some form of Obama derangement syndrome. He wrote a book with uh, Michael Ledeen, who's a very prominent anti-Iran neoconservative. He started hanging out with people like Sebastian Gorka. He wrote a book about, like, essentially, we're losing the war on terror because Obama won't call them radical Islamic terrorists, as if the choice of words would somehow defeat ISIS, as opposed to sending, you know, thousands of troops and a lot of American air power and killing tens of thousands of ISIS members, as Obama, as Obama actually did. Over time, and also he became a conspiracist. He started, he went on a radio show saying that there were actually signs at the U.S.-Mexico border in Arabic pointing people who were ISIS members about which way. I mean, stuff that made no sense at all. And his son also was part of this and this whole Comet Pizza, the idea that Hillary Clinton and John Podesta are running a child sex ring out of a pizza ring operation in West Washington. I mean, the point is that these are all crazy things. Having gone from a very well-respected three-star general who was retired, he, he sort of went down a number of different rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah. But I think they, I don't know if you know if it's an active investigation, but to just let lie that Turkish agents were on American soil working with American officials to kidnap someone who's a resident of the United States in contravention of American foreign policy. I mean, we have another a lot of investigations to look into, but that to me seems really serious. Well, I mean, I don't think Flynn was involved in that. And I, I'm not sure what the status of that investigation is, but I, certainly they, the Turks want this guy back. They wanted him to be extradited. And, you know, they saw Flynn as somebody who could be helpful to that cause. So Trump always said we're going to take the gloves off in our fight against ISIS. And, you know, our fight against ISIS has been relatively successful in terms of pushing them back and taking territory from them and countering their influence. Should he get some credit? Yes. I mean, the short answer is yes. And, of course, he authorized the operation in October that led to the the death of Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi, the leader of ISIS. And that was a risky operation. They had to fly across a lot of contested territory in Syria that is controlled by the Russians. And the Russians have you know, very sophisticated ballistic missile systems. So, yeah, he does get some credit. He gets some credit for speeding up the operations against ISIS, pushing authorities down to commanders to kind of basically they previously they'd had a check with the White House for these kinds of operations. I do think he gets credit for that. 
Yeah. So Trump and his generals, he has no more generals left in the cabinet or in top positions, does he? Well, other than the Joint cham- Chiefs. The chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Right. But, but even Esper was, I think yeah, his highest was, rank was an officer. But Yeah, and he was yeah. a, you know, a defense contractor. So how does that change things? Just the fact that well, there are I, no generals left? Well, I think it changes things. I mean, yeah, when you're a four-star general like John Kelly, you ran Southern Command or Jim Mattis, you ran Central Command or H.R. McMaster, who was like, you know, war hero in two wars, wrote a PhD and a book that's you know very highly regarded about the Vietnam War. I mean, these are serious people. And I'm not saying the people that have replaced them aren't serious, but I mean, they're not willing to challenge Trump. And basically, he's got a bunch of yes men. He's running the White House like he ran his real estate company, which is a one-man show with a bunch of yes people. And if you're not a yes person, you're right. I mean, this is not a team of rivals. This is a team of acolytes. Mm -hmm. So in the beginning, if he wasn't always picking from the greatest pool of candidates just because he wouldn't pick anyone who was ever criticized him, he wouldn't pick any of those foreign service people who signed Well, by the way, you've raised a very good point. Because the reason that – so the never-Trumpers didn't involve military officers because the, even in retirement, particularly the higher up you are, the less likely you are to have taken a position politically. Yeah. I mean if you're obviously in uniform, you cannot take a position politically. But one of the reasons that he had to go to this pool of military officers is the pool of military officers, including retired, were much less likely to have taken any position publicly on whether he was fit to serve. And in fact, neither Mattis nor Trump nor H.R. McMaster, they never met Trump. They didn't even know people who knew Trump, mm-hmm. you know, before they, you know, that, uh, you know, in, in in most of these cases. So they weren't part of his ecosystem. Um, he look, he came in. He was the first American president who'd never had public office, never served in the military. He needed to know how the levers of power worked, and which is why he selected these group of guys, who uh, many of whom were, you know, quite competent, and who had their own reasons, by the way, to be dissatisfied with Obama. So those were the only people in the talent pool, maybe with talent, because they were precluded from raising their hand and saying, count me out. Right. And yeah. there were certainly 100 you know, people who are serious Republicans who signed the never Trump letters and never weren't going to get jobs. Yeah. And so what are we down to? What are we left with? Well, you know, I mean, I think Mark Espo, who's the Secretary of Defense, he's a competent guy. He's not Jim Mattis. Robert O'Brien, who's a national security advisor, he's a you know, competent lawyer, but he's not H.R. McMaster. John Kelly is his replacement. Is the acting continue, you know chief of staff, Mick Mulvaney. I think yeah. these are just. I I don't see them taking a position with Trump that would challenge him. Trump and his generals, the cost of chaos. CNN's Peter Bergen. Thank you so much for coming in. Oh, thank you, sir. And now the spiel. In political news, there is a trade deal with China. It's limited. There is federally approved maternity and paternity leave. That's big. There is a space force. We're getting a space force. All of that is news. The House passing articles of impeachment is also news, but it is not new. It is quite familiar, and therefore, it strains our attention. And I'm not even using the, oh, people are working hard, they're working three jobs. When they come home, they just want to check out, or they have their bills to pay, or they want to put on the contentious caterwauling of housewives at the end of a day. No, I'm not even saying that. I'm saying that even heavy news consumers, just listeners, just hosts, know that there's other news out there. Boris Johnson just won victory in England. The IG report, there's a lot of stuff to pay attention to, and impeachment is not really moving or changing. It just is. Impeachment was going to happen, and we've known this for weeks. The leaders announced it. 
The representatives debated it. 15 hours later, the committee paused debate. Then they came back this morning and voted on the articles. It is not meaningless. It is extremely meaningful, but it is familiar. And within our inundated information matrix, you can be excused if you, I'm not saying check out, but if you just put it all on hold for a second, if you say, I got it. What's new about this? Okay, not much new, understood. But what's this about Boris Johnson? What's this about the chief of Medicare asking taxpayers to cover stolen jewelry? That happened, by the way. That's not unimportant. And I believe all that other stuff moots analysis like this that Maya Wiley provided on MSNBC on Wednesday. I think what we were seeing during the daytime from Republicans was their effort to get their sound bites that were going to be shown on evening TV. Mm-hmm. Now they're on evening mm-hmm. TV. So it's a very, very different animal for them. Come on, sound bites? I mean, sure, that is why the Republicans are carrying on. It's why Democrats made sure not to have their big vote take place in the dead of night. But the notion that this is all to craft sound bites destined to win over an audience watching the network news, it is an antiquated notion. Look, you're going to hear lots of criticism, and much of it comes from Republicans saying this is essentially an uncompelling TV show. Here, in fact, is Devin Nunes on Fox referring to the House Judiciary Committee's hearings where constitutional law scholars testified. I don't know how anybody could even watch this today. I, and I'm not sure if anybody did watch this. I can't imagine what the ratings are going to be like. And, you know, I guess we'll know in the next couple of days. But can you imagine people sitting through that? I mean, that are at home watching. I just I just can't imagine. So I have to ask you about something anybody's watching. Nunes then lit his nipples on fire and did a roll over the hood of a car as part of his ongoing commitment to provide compelling televised content for the U.S. voter. But he's right. People aren't watching. And it's not because the Democrats could have put on a better show. The Democrats are building a case. It's simply easier to shout and spout about rush to judgment and Zelensky acquiescence than to build a case. And the public really wants a break. They want it to end. The public has largely decided. And I believe Trump and his acolytes understand this. So when Jim Jordan makes an aggrieved, sustained, noisy argument, the point isn't the argument. The point is that it's sustained and noisy. He has, for instance, been hammering away at this point for a while. This whole thing is built on what Nancy Pelosi said two weeks ago Sunday when she called the president of the United States an imposter. Well, the official presidential campaign team did just tweet a mock-up of Trump's head on Greta Thunberg's body on the cover of Time magazine. Kind of undercuts the whole he's not an imposter thing. To say nothing of the say nothing of Barron theme. When Trump keeps saying perfect phone call, when Jim Jordan and Doug Collins and Matt Gates endlessly yell their dissent, hell, even when Trump talks about flushing a toilet 10 or 15 times, it has the effect of just putting out more information into our matrix. And like those pretend toilets, we're overloaded. The nonsense accrues. It doesn't rebut the facts, but it does take up space. I mean, we are animals. We're hardwired to process information not so differently from when we were running away from tigers, to say nothing of from when we were switching between three channels, Cronkite or John Chancellor. So it's natural that we tune out what doesn't offer the instant dopamine hit of novelty. 
Like that supposed toilet, after the fourth or 14th flush, we don't even process anything that has the whiff of the familiar. I do believe we feel resentful of having been told once and then again and then a third time that this continues to be an important thing. It's not that we disagree that it's important. It's just that we can't waste our time on anything that continues to be. I think this had a role in the voting in the UK. Boris Johnson and the conservatives introduced to their country this terrible policy. They did nothing to move the policy forward, pretty much because enough people realized it is a terrible policy. But over the years since the vote, the attention of the country grows weary. They just want a way to end it. Just like in America, a slight majority of the public does favor impeachment, but the vast majority just wants to end it. And there's not going to be a popular uprising to tell senators, you got to change your minds. There won't be a Nixon tape. There won't be Sam Irving. There won't be a blue dress moment. It's all baked in and it's been in the oven way too long. It's not that the Democrats played this wrong. It's that the Republicans had more tools at their disposal. And their tools included the fact that we've become habituated to their folly, but not roused enough to end it. Not insufficient enough numbers. If you want it in a simple sentence, here it is. The cacistocracy depends on the cacophony. Cacistocracy, government by the worst people. Cacophony, the din. The Republicans do not want to be above the din. They want to be of it. It gives them strength and cover. And that's it for today's show. Daniel Schrader produces The Gist. He has a program that can be a competitor in the marketplace for D-Bird. He calls it Glass Building. Christina DeJosa also produces The Gist. She is very happy that I made a reference to a toilet flushing 15 times. 12 seconds later, I used the word rebuttal, and I didn't make the connection. She thanks me for that. The Gist. You know you have a killer app when your brand name D-Bird brings you to the website of dbird.org, a publicly sourced database of dead or injured birds. If you find a dead or injured bird, you can make an important contribution by submitting the information through dbird. You guys are sitting on a gold mine. Oomperu depru dupru, and thanks for listening.